HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk. Who the hell are you to tell me what is the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it? <laughs> it's our entire life. Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk. You don't walk into a tiki bar and be like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like, it's, it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad, and that's where it gets a bad name. Tune into this week's episode of Meat and 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, growing up in North Indian, growing up North Indian in the Lone Star State of Dallas, Texas, to be exact, uh, didn't mean that Indian American mashups like roti pizza were a given. For food writer Priya Krishna, her mother Ritu's penchant for cooking led her away from the traditional dal and sabzi recipes you'd find in most Hindi cookbooks. Instead, Considering her cuisine a coalescence, now it's the eponymous name given to her daughter Priya's cookbook, Indianish Recipes and Antics from a Modern American Family. Well, welcome, Priya. Thanks. Uh, I know this is negative seven, uh, day negative seven before your book actually gets released next week, but the, 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 the fervor in which people are, are cooking out of Indianish already must have you extremely excited about the prospects of this book actually being out in the world. Yeah, it's really surreal. I wish I wish I could share with my parents, but they've been off the grid the last two weeks hiking in Israel and Jordan. <laughs> so I think they land today. I'm very excited to tell them all the people that have been cooking out of this book. Yeah, and they're probably <laughs> getting ready for book tour too because they are, if not already, celebrities. Yeah, they both, they, they really are. I feel like, you know, 
my dad's face has been in the New York Times now. Like, where do you go from there? <laughs> yeah. Were they as celebrated in Dallas, Texas, in your community? Um, or were you the only Indian Americans living there? No, there's a huge community of Indians in Dallas. I mean, in general, in Texas, it's just like teeming with Indians. Uh, I'd like to think the there's lots of wide open spaces and the climate is somewhat similar to India, so it draws people there. But... Um, yeah, no, my parents have always been sort of surrounded themselves with a big, big Indian community. So that's sort of how I grew up as well. I, I was reading that there's over 1.2 billion people of Indian descent across the globe. 1.2 billion. That, that, that is surely a lot. Um, and most of those are Hindu, uh, vegetarian. Uh, did you grow up vegetarian? Did you grow up, uh, you know, a specific sect is that Indian? is that true that most of them are Hindu and vegetarian? Of the of the people that at least cook, I think that was true. Oh, interesting. Because I was yeah, I was reading all these amazing kind of like economics of the amount of Indians and how much vegetables versus protein they buy, and the majority of food is at least vegetable based. If that makes more yeah, sense. Yeah, but there are certain regions where meat still like is quite dominant. I grew up um, were Hindus. Um, we ate vegetarian growing up, but it wasn't really for religious reasons. I feel like people assume that people don't eat meat because we worship the cow. That's sort of a myth perpetuated yeah. by the British. Um, we are more just cultural vegetarians. It's how my parents grew up. It's more economical. Um, it's, you know, it's more sustainable. Um, my mom is kind of a health nut and she found it easier to sort of be for us to be healthy by just having, um, vegetarian meals and when she grew up she grew up with you know you've got your dal your sabzi your rice your salad and so that's that's how I grew up eating and you know obviously I became a non-vegetarian and now I eat you know everything under the sun but when I'm home and cooking for myself it's 90 to 95 percent vegetarian and the book is 90 to 95 percent vegetarian yeah and, and not that the meat was relegated to the back but it you know there, there was how many chicken and how many fish dishes towards the latter part of the book yeah it's like it's <laughs> there's one chicken dish which I like it was very intentional back. I feel like every cookbook comes with like hundreds of chicken recipes, but there's only one chicken recipe that I really actually cook and it's my aunt Sonia's. And then there's three fish dishes. So it's very light on those, but I've found the response has been, I feel like we're sort of unintentional. I unintentionally released this book in a moment where we're really into vegetarian cooking and meat is no longer seen as the, the centerpiece of the dinner table. Yeah, and I love this term, cultural vegetarianism. Um, what, what other cultural things in this book um, you think will resonate with readers, with cooks, um, that you don't see in Indian American or American cooking at the moment? Oh, American cooking. Well, the one thing that I feel has really resonated with readers is the number of poop jokes in the book, like how much our family talks about digestion yeah, and poop. Yeah, the scatological <laughs> was unexpected. Like, I feel like I've gotten notes from people being like, this is exactly what my family talks about at the dinner table, and it's, I've never seen it like presented so wholeheartedly in a cookbook. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you should have a little key about the amount of fiber in every dish at exactly, the end Exactly, of we love fiber in the Krishna family. Yeah, and... <laughs> You know, you, you aren't, especially because of the name of this cookbook, you aren't the typical North Indian um, in that your mother came to the States um, blending the cultures almost automatically when she got here. It wasn't trying to take all your traditions and, and force them upon you. It seemed like you lived this life that was 
had a lot of latitude. Yeah, I mean, I, I would kind of disagree with that. I think that was pretty typical for people her age who came, and, and for many immigrants, not just Indian immigrants who came elsewhere to the U.S. You know, you have these foods that are your comfort foods. You come to a new place. You blend those flavors of the, that are most familiar to you with the ingredients that you have on hand. You know, that's how some, you know, some of my favorite restaurant dishes are born. That's how, you know, Roy Choi came up with the idea of like putting American cheese on top of his ramen. Um, and, you know, I find that to be the most exciting cooking that's happening in the U.S. right now. Then let's myth bust some of those preconceptions of what an Indian person or Indian American is in the States. Um, you already talked about one, the, the vegetarianism, mm -hmm. but I know the word curry carries a lot of weight. Yeah, I absolutely loathe that term. Um, and there's, I made it a point to not include it in any part of my book or the recipe names, um, except the part where I talk about why I hate it, which is that, um, the word curry is sort of a monolithic term that was propagated by the British when they colonized India in an effort to sort of, um, reduce Indian cuisine to this sort of single entity when in fact Indian cuisine is breathtaking in its diversity. Um, each dish has different names. It's not just chicken curry or lamb curry or eggplant curry. Those things all have actual names to them, but because the British were the ones codifying um, a lot of the Indian techniques they learned, um, curry became codified in Western cookbooks and then curry powder became uh, a very popular means of sort of distilling Indian flavor into this kind of like flavorful yellow powder. Um, and now it's sort of being has continues to be used as this, you know, like homogenous representation of Indian cuisine. Um, and it's done, it's done Indians such a disservice, this pesky one, two, three, like six letter word. <laughs> Is yeah. it five? No, five letters. Yeah, I mean, we, we've actually talked in the past on uh, another podcast I do, Food 52's mm -hmm. Burnt Toast, um, actually about spicy food mm -hmm. and the concept of curry being spicy. But we talk mainly about the Indo-Chinese sect of the cuisine. How many different, or, or can you even define how many different types of cuisine fall underneath uh, Indian food? I mean, I mean, there's so many. I mean, there's different regions of India, different states. Within those states, there are um, localities with their own cuisine. I mean, even my family is from Uttar Pradesh, but I would say the food that my dad grew up eating, where his family's from in Vrindavan, is, is, has subtle but important differences between the food my mom had in Merit um, even though both of those places are probably a few hours drive away from each other. And I think what's really amazing about India, um, and this is true about a lot of countries, including the States, is that going from one part of the country to the other is almost like going from one country to another country. You know, the cuisine is almost in indistinguishable. Go from, you know, Rajasthan to Kerala and you'll find very little in common. What well, was there literature or cookbooks out there that define those different types of cuisines? Um, I, I know you've now met your idol, uh, Mata Joffrey, mm -hmm. and she is uh, the doyen of Indian uh, mm -hmm. cookbooks. Um, were there people actually regionalizing these cuisines in, in literature, or do you feel like we still have a long way to go to do that? 
Yes, I think they're, Mother Joffrey did an amazing job. There's this guy, his name is Pushbesh Bunt, who wrote a book called India the Cookbook that did an amazing job breaking things down. It is down. a hefty tone, Yeah, too. regionally. Yeah. Um, this woman, Sonal Ved, uh, who's the editor of Vogue India, just wrote a massive cookbook attempting to break down India into its various regional cuisines. Um, and yet, I still think that that regionality is heavily misunderstood in America. And I think the way that that will probably change is as Indian chefs lean more into regionality. I think right now I've talked to so many Indian chefs who are terrified of not putting dishes like butter chicken and chicken tikka masala on the menu because people come in, they see it's an Indian restaurant, that's what they have come to expect. So I'm hoping that those chefs will become more comfortable sort of leaning into um, sort of more specific foods of their regional traditions. And I think that's maybe when we'll start to see a shift in understanding. Well, this is a big shift because we're going to talk about Bollywood for a second, which mm -hmm. is how many times larger than Hollywood as a whole. Uh, you wrote this amazing piece for Sever about food-themed Bollywood movies. Mm -hmm. um, can we talk about a couple of those movies and the dishes in those and whether or not you've seen those dishes propagate in the States? Sure. I mean, a lot of the dishes in that are like, really are like very specific dishes. Like there's one called Love Shove uh, Chicken Kurana, and that's like a very, very specific chicken stew to a family. So it's all, and that feels in and of itself very representative of Indian cuisine because it is so typical for a family to have like one particular preparation of chicken or one preparation of eggplant or like this is how we do like a shrimp stew. Um... So I feel like that is heavily indicative. Um, there's actually, I don't think this one is on that list, or maybe it is. They did a take a version of the American movie Chef. Um, and in that movie, uh, it was really funny. They make a basically a version of roti pizza, which is a dish in my book. And I remember going to see that movie with my mom and being like, oh my God, they're making roti pizza. Like that's our dish. Um, and that was pretty cool to see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in reading this cookbook, um, it read almost like a script for a movie. Uh, it was so cinematic because it was so visual in its descriptions, but we were really being introduced to you and your mother and your father and all your aunties and, and the, the larger Krishna crew um, in a way that, that felt like Bollywood to me. Uh, not that it was like over the top and they were singing and dancing, um, but that it had a story. It had a character arc throughout the, the, the pages of this book. Um, did you want to tell a story in that way, or was each single recipe its own entity? I mean, I like to think it didn't just feel like Bollywood. I, I, I would hope that a story like that would belong in Hollywood, too. Yes. Um, I wouldn't say that that was, the, that was the intention to sort of... I definitely wanted to create a narrative, but I'm just... Um, very like flabbergasted in a good way that you felt that it was almost larger than life in that way. Cause I definitely do feel that way about my family, but mm -hmm. I didn't set out to sort of um, present this uh, universe of them. But like, I mean, I feel like the book just speaks to the truth of how I grew up. You know, my, I grew up with um, this like really 
like unbelievably accomplished um, mother who I was always striving to to be like, but always somehow fell short of, and a father who walked around wearing lungis, which are like wraparound skirts. Oh, and it from- said in the book, it says, w- uh, washing dishes wearing nothing but a lungi, Google it, and I instantly Google it. I'm like, <laughs> okay, got it. That is the picture in my head now, forever. Yeah, any description. At first I was like, a long loincloth, and I was like, nah, I no, feel like you have to Google need it. To you need the visual in front. Everyone Google lungi right now. Yeah. Um, but but you have presented your your parents as such figureheads in, in your life, but now it's kind of spilling into our lives too. I mean, they're they're such endearing people. Um, and I've seen so much that you've written lately for the New York Times and, and Taste, um, almost as the yogurt correspondent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the importance of yogurt and your father's tradition of making it and shoving the store-bought ones you wanted to test with aside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's very standard in many Indian households for homemade yogurt uh, to be crafted by a member of the family. Um, my mom just was very busy, so somehow in, in the 80s, that task got shifted to my dad, who loves repeatable algorithms, and yogurt is this very scientific thing, so he loved it. But, you know, to this day, I've never had yogurt as good as my dad's. Um I think as my dad once put it, his yogurt tastes alive. There's these beautiful tangy chunks. Um, as soon as my sister and I are coming to town, my dad will make like three uh, huge containers full of yogurt. And to me, that is like the purest expression of his love is him stockpiling yogurt for my sister and I when we're coming home. Yeah, it's just so good. Just, I mean, thinking about it, my mouth is literally watering. I mean, you call it an heirloom, so it's a gift that he's giving into a new generation. Who is the next person in your family to carry that, um, you know, generational thing along? That's a great question. Right now, the person making my dad's yogurt most frequently, I think, is is Brad Leone, who's one of my colleagues in the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen. We just did a video where he made yogurt using yogurt culture brought from my dad to New York. Um, and I, I think he's making it on a semi-regular basis now. So I'm like, Oh God, like if I, if I don't start making yogurt, Brad Leone is going to be like the next generation. (laughs) Well, I mean, that, that was more of what I was meaning, the cinematic effect that people take a story from something like that and almost make it their own. Mm -hmm. Uh, if not completely make it their own. And let's talk about Bon Appetit because what you're doing there on video and introducing single recipes, um, the, one of the first ones actually had yogurt in it. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the profound effect you've seen of that platform being able to show your Indianish cooking? I mean, it is just the number of people that watch those videos is just astounding. And I had no idea when they asked me to start doing them, that that was that their audience was not only so huge, but so engaged. Like they, they they are sort of like, they'll do whatever Bon Appetit tells them to do. They'll cook whatever Bon Appetit tells them to cook. And I think what was, what's amazing about that is as soon as I was like, okay, you're going to make, you're going to mix together yogurt and onions and cilantro, spread it on sourdough bread, toast it like a grilled cheese. And then I'm going to teach you to make this thing called chonk where you temper curry leaves and mustard seeds and oil and drizzle it on top. People made it. I woke up to like 50 Instagram messages of people who'd gone out and bought curry leaves. And it was so exciting to me because, you know, for so long food magazines have been chock full of pasta and roast chicken recipes. And that to me was proof that like, you know, there is space for Indian cuisine for curry leaves for mustard seeds in a food magazine as, you know, mainstream and glossy as Bon Appetit. So 
that was really cool. You know what else was kind of nice? It, it's pronounced dahi toast. Dahi toast, yeah. Um, that it said dahi toast, and it didn't say Indian yogurt grilled cheese. Um, that you're giving the real names of, of things that you grew up with because you want people to call them by that. Um, obviously, that's intentional, but, but why is that such an important thing? It's so interesting. I thought that they would ask me to sort of simplify the name, and I was really worried about that, and I was so excited that they just put dahi toast. I mean, I think this is this is how curry became curry. If we don't call things by their names, you know, we'll just be dumbing down our own cuisine, our own traditions. I mean, we've never asked white people to do that, so why should we be asked to do it? I also like that you have a, a, a another one about sag paneer, but mm -hmm. you certainly call it what it is, but with feta. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's another one that I get messages about constantly with people making it, and I mean, that, and what, and people messaging me being like, it's not that hard. And I want to be like, Indian food in general, not that hard. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break, come back and talk to Priya Krishna so much more about her wonderful cookbook, Indianish. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hey, are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Kathy Irway, and I'm the host of Eat Your Words here on HRN. Every week I sit down with food writers to talk about their newest work, from colorful cookbooks to food memoirs to exposés on the food industry. It's all meaty topic for discussion. You can find Eat Your Words wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Priya Krishner and her lovely cookbook, Indianish. Um, and we're going to jump into this book. There's so much to cover, and you know, this is one of those shows that I wish I had, you know... Part one, part two, um, but hopefully we have you back on the station many, many a times. There's been this recent, um, you know, explosion of Indian-ish cookbooks, not, you know, with that name, but we've got Vibrant India by uh, the yeah, Chitra behind uh, Brooklyn Deli, uh, D-E-L-H-I, this amazing condiment line of um, Achars, and then My Two Souths by Asha Gomez, The Juhu Beach Club by Pretty Mystery and uh, Nick Sharma's Seasons. Now, w why do you think this is happening right now? Um, you know, so many amazing cookbooks from very different points of view uh, from people with Indian background. I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure why this is happening now, but I'd like to, I, I, I hope that it's, that it's not a moment, but something that continues to happen. You know, I feel so lucky to be surrounded by colleagues like 
you know, Nick and Preeti and Chitra, um, who are doing, who, who have, you know, been doing the work for so long and much longer than me in trying to make these ingredients mainstream. And for whatever reason, it does seem like we, we have the mic in a way and, and, and people are listening. So I think all of us are just, you know, we're just like, we're excited to, to, <laughs> to jump on it whenever we, in, in, in any way that we can. And one thing that's a, a theory that I have that would makes me a little bit sad is that I feel like Indian cuisine has become um, sort of an object of wellness enthusiasts. You know, you look at the rise of turmeric, um, the rise of chai, it's chai, not chai tea. That's redundant to say, um, or even like the rise of, you know, interest in Ayurvedic, uh, values and diets. And I, and I feel like that has sort of made Indian cuisine maybe more interesting to people. I feel like 10 or 15 years ago, most people who I talked to sort of associated it with like, with like diarrhea and like food that was really heavy and rich. And now we've somehow gone to the opposite end of the spectrum. And I feel like people like me and Nick and Preeti are trying to show that there's like, there's, there's a middle ground. It's, it's neither, you know, bird food, nor is it really bad for you food. But I feel like we're all just trying to like capitalize on this however we can. (laughs) Well, I mean, not to myth bust that it's healthy or not, but there was one recipe that I went directly to and it's a chidi, K-H-I, the... K H I C yeah kitchiny yeah um, which which I've had before and not that it gets relegated to but it's something that you 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 mention is for sick days and baby food like it gets kind of pushed in that mm-hmm. um, it's a very interesting recipe in this book because hearing sick days um, might push somebody towards cooking that to make themselves feel better. I don't know mm-hmm. if that falls into wellness, um, but baby food isn't necessarily the most attractive descriptive term either. What do you think it is about this recipe that is not only delicious, but is like at the root of what Indian cooking is? Um, I mean, I just, I, so the, the, re, the context, which I called it sort of baby food or for sick days was that I said that, you know, white people tend to only latch on to Indian dishes for some reason that are either baby food or sick days thinking about turmeric lattes and chai. Um, but I, kitchari is so wonderful because lentils and rice are two staples of Indian cuisine. Those are two ingredients that really cross borders um, that you'll find from north to south to east to west. And something really magical happens when you cook them together in the same pot. And the way the starches of the rice meld with the pot liquor from the lentils to sort of create this like silky stew is just um one of a kind it's it that is comfort food for me is it easy to do because you give a primer on how to cook beautiful long grain basmati fluffy rice you also give a great primer in the book about the different kinds of uh, lentils um it's not a given that you just mix these two things together and they cook perfectly together all the time, right? Yeah, no, I mean, actually, I would say kitchari is easier to make than like lentils by themselves or rice by itself because you don't need multiple pots. You're literally dumping everything in a pot and then just cooking it and simmering it for for a long time. Um, But it is so easy and just so nourishing, that dish. Yeah. I found reading this to be the same thing. It was a very nourishing read. (laughs) Uh, You gave me that word. Thank you. Um, 
nourishing and also like impactful. It, it had this force to it. And that led me to reading as much as I could about Chunk. Uh, you know, the double H, <laughs> yeah. C, C double H. And Chunk, uh, just the sound of it, you know, it's, <laughs> it's got some weight to it. It's got some force. Can you explain what Chunk is and why it seems to be able to exist in a lot of different realms uh, within the book? Sure. So chonk is a technique that's existed in Indian cuisine for a very long time. Um, and the idea is that you're basically tempering spices or herbs in either oil or ghee, and you end up not only with this sort of beautiful spice-infused oil, but the um, spices, by heating them up, you're bringing out their flavors, their aromatics, you're giving them um, a bit of texture. So it's a way to add sort of a layer of complexity, richness, and crunch to the top of a dish. And I feel like in Indian cuisine, where there are a lot of stewy sabzis and dal, that sort of extra layer of complexity is really welcome. And I think one thing that Indian cuisine does an amazing job of, and that my mom does an amazing job of, is building layers of flavor. So many dishes, you're only building one layer of flavor. Like you're baking a piece of fish with like some lemon and herbs. In Indian cuisine, you're um, sort of simmering onions in a pan until they get beautifully bitter and caramelly. Then you're adding your ginger and your garlic. Then you add a layer of coriander and cumin. Then you add your vegetables. You stew that together. Um, you add, in the case of like, I'm thinking the sag feta, you add this briny, salty feta. And then you hit it with the chonk on the top. And, you know, Indian cuisine has never been subtle. It's almost like the equivalent of wearing like a pattern with a pattern and it works. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also takes time, but it isn't specifically time sensitive um, as far as how you build flavors. With but it the, doesn't take time. That's, yeah. the, that's the whole point. These the, My book is all dishes that don't take time. Like these are dishes that my mom, who was a software programmer, had to put on the table when, you know, she only had 20 minutes and she just got home from work. So I, you know, want to kind of bust the myth that layering lots layering flavors takes a ton of time it doesn't you can build a, di a beautifully layered dish in 30 minutes or less 20 minutes or less i hope that's a takeaway from the yeah book. well maybe time was the wrong word but it takes procedure uh in that you don't just throw spices in you toast those spices first mm -hmm. uh, the way things bloom in the ghee in fact mm -hmm. uh you know i for years, I didn't know that even turmeric uh, you weren't supposed to eat raw, that it was something that you have to bloom in this yes. wonderful fat as well. That's where you really get the essence or the heart of all Indian cooking, taking the time to actually follow these steps and these procedures correctly. Yeah, and like once you learn how to do things like make a chonk or, you know, saute onions and spices and oil, then add some ginger and garlic, you've got the basis for so many Indian dishes. You know, it's after I tested 15 or 20 recipes, I was like, I feel like I have the hang of this. It's, it's really not hard. Have you seen anyone come to you with the intimidation of building out an Indian pantry? And if so, how do you talk them down from those worries? I mean, I don't think you need to build an Indian pantry to make the dishes in this book. Um, a lot of them only call for one or two spices and people are surprised to find that their spices they already have in their cabinet from, you know, making, uh, chicken tacos or making cumin lamb noodles, things that they've already been making at home. So I would say, no, you like don't have to, I, I very intentionally was like, there's not a section about like, there's a section about a guide to all the spices, but I, I certainly don't think you need to build an Indian pantry. 
to do, do this cookbook. Do you need to build some kind of larder, though? I thought it was a little tongue-in-cheek that the first real cooking session was called Mother Sauces, because mm-hmm. I thought it was all about sauces that your mother uh, had made for you. But actually, I think one of the first ones, uh, aside from these ginger lime strips, was your dad's yogurt, yet again. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are the things that we should have in our fridge to be able to succeed in cooking through Indianish? Uh, lots of cilantro, lots of lime, lots of chilies, ginger, and garlic. But I feel like those are things a lot of people have mm-hmm. in their kitchens already. <laughs> I, I hope so. Or even if you don't have limes, lemons. I'm all about substitutes in the book. Uh, you know, for every spice, every ingredient, I tried to offer, you know, substitutes if I sensed that it could all pose a challenge to find. Or Ex- you already have the chutney ready in the fridge. Yeah. Let's talk about that stockpile, too. How many chutneys do you usually have, and what is the versatility of each one? Sure. I mean, chutneys, they go quickly. So, I mean, I usually have, like, a chutney at a time because I'm usually – I'll have cilantro, and I won't know to do with it, or I I will have too much of it, so I'll, you know, just auto-make whatever is left into a chutney. Um, I mean, I always have various jars of a char. This is, like – it's such an Indian thing to have, like, unmarked – pasta jars that are not pasta sauce jars that are not filled with pasta sauce but are filled with you know pickled garlic and lotus root that you got from your cousin's sister's wife on this trip to Delhi in fact I like literally I was like I could not be more Indian I came back from Delhi a few weeks ago and I just and I had like three unmarked jars of a char and I was like I am becoming my parents yeah. <laughs> I'm hoarding a jar that, that's when you make your achar fish recipe in the book yes see now you yes. have an index to refer to when you don't know what to do with your you know stockpile totally. of things totally um, recipe wise again the, the majority is vegetarian but you split it into two major sections and that's vegetable mains which actually I think leads before vegetable sides mm-hmm. um, why did you lead with the bigger and then the smaller um, I don't know, because I thought people would be thinking about what was going to be at the center of the table first and then thinking about what goes around the side. I also just, vegetables are so crucial to the Indian cuisine that I grew up eating that at first I had a huge vegetable section, but I was like, you know, I think actually it makes sense to split it up into the vegetable dishes that really function as those show-stopping center of the table things and then the ones that work as more ensemble players. I mean, there are so many potato recipes. I almost made a whole section just called potatoes. <laughs> yeah, can you pick a favorite potato recipe out of the book or um, are they like all your children? Okay, well, my favorite is probably the Indianish baked potatoes, which are like these little miniature potatoes you top with sour cream and chaat masala and onions and cilantro, and they're just delicious, a really beautiful party app. But the biggest labor of love was learning to make alu paranta, which is um, a type of bread stuffed with potatoes. And my aunt, Rachna, I call her Rachna Mami, has been making them for me for as long as I can remember. And so when I made that perfect paranta and mastered her recipe, that probably felt better than than making any other dish in the book. In which way is it? It's 80% potato and 20% dough? Yeah. You know, it's sort of that idea of, you know, when I feel like a common criticism I hear of things like, like crab cakes is like not enough crab and too much breading. That's the same criticism people have about alu paranta. It's like too much bread, not enough alu. Yeah, and potato being at the core, I mean, you, you consider that a bread. Um, there was this place in the East Village that was serving really great food on small little, like, potato buns. Uh, and you have a recipe very similar to that in the recipe. Baobaji. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I hate to call it a slider, but it kind of is. It's yeah, a it's very small very similar thing. to a slider. Uh, what are things that have like tenants of familiar American cuisine that are in this book, like a slider, um, that that either use bread as a vehicle or something as a vehicle to bring in Indian food or flavors? Um, I mean, the dahi toast we talked about is sort of very similar to a grilled cheese, but just done Indian style. Um, let's see. There's a lot of toast, just general toast recipes. There's a tomato cheese masala toast, which is probably I eat it more than any other thing at home. You just melt tomatoes. Uh, you melt cheese on top of like a tomato toast and then sprinkle it very liberally with chaat masala. I feel like we love, we, in America, we love toast. And so, and, and Indians love toast too. So that felt like a commonality. There's obviously pizza made on, made using roti as a base. So it's familiar, but, you know, a little bit different. Um, yeah. One that I found really interesting yeah. was the tomato rice with crispy cheddar. Yeah. Because you call it pizza in rice form, but then it has all these South Indian tomato rice flavors going on too. Yeah, I mean, that recipe is a true... Uh, like hodgepodge of things because it's a mixture of classic South Indian tomato rice is a very, you know, very standard dish, a Spanish rice that my mom and I found in my Spanish textbook (laughs) when I was in middle school. Um, and then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that, uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. And she was like, this is genius. (laughs) So we added a layer of broiled cheddar on top. And, you know, sure enough, my sister and I, 10 year olds, we loved it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, growing up in Dallas, you had the food that your mother cooked. Did she ever incorporate something from that area uh, onto the table without integrating into a dish like spicy queso, perhaps? Um, My mom loved making uh, enchiladas out of roti. Um, we loved the idea of an enchilada. My Another thing that my mom loved was in Texas, you know, we ate a lot of burritos and you eat burritos by like peeling away at the foil one layer at a time. And my mom just thought that was ingenious. So she made little mini burritos of, of roti where we stuffed them with alu gobi and then she would wrap, she like learned how they do it at the burrito places and would wrap it just like that and we'd go on trips and we'd slowly peel apart the layers. Um, but I also think, I mean, growing up in Dallas, there are all these amazing immigrant communities. So, you know, we ate amazing Thai food, Mexican food, Vietnamese food. And you see little touches of that. Like, you know, my mom, there's a sort of pho-inspired sandwich that has, a, like, a lot of herbs that you would find in a pho. There's the the little burrito, the Indian burrito recipe. Um and, you know, my mom traveled a ton. So I feel like the book is representative not just of the diversity of Texas, but, you know, the diversity that she encountered in her travels. And I see that in the salad section. Uh, how do you say? Uh, Kachumber. Kachumber. Yeah. Because then you have the basic, which is tomato, cucumber, onion, chili, cilantro, and garlic. But then there are combinations like bean and avocado, mm-hmm. mung bean and potato, daikon and radish. And it seems like there's a little more brevity there. Yeah. I mean, I feel like my mother loved... She loved going to a new country and walking into a grocery store, seeing what what produce do they use, what sauces do they use. She is just so curious in that way. I always think that, you know, had she maybe lived in a different generation where expectations were different and she she knew more about the profession, professional possibilities, she probably would have worked in food. This is such an unfair thing to do to you at the end of this interview, but 
I want you to define your mother. She is such a glowing patron of everything in this book. And she's on the front of the book, too. Mm-hmm. And one, one thing that I love is that she is uh, uh, drawn in this really beautiful, illustrative, like Desi pop art manner mm-hmm. um, as Rosie the Riveter. Mm-hmm. Why that choice on the cover? Why is that the first introduction of your mother? And uh, how do you want to see her exalted and represented throughout this book? I mean, I feel like in the same way that Rosie the Riveter is sort of this exalted symbol of feminism, it was almost subverting that symbol in that, like, okay, it's still a feminist symbol, but we're making it Indian and we're making it my mom. And instead of we can do it, it's you can cook it. It sort of felt like this perfect marriage of everything my mom stands for. My mom is a quiet feminist. She's strong. She is you know, resilient. Um, and she's really unapologetic about what she believes in and, and, and what she cooks. And, you know, if I'm half the person that she is 20, 30 years from now, I'll be a happy camper. Yeah. It, well, it made me question too, is it matriarchal? Because Rosie the Riveter also symbolized a, a time, you know, during World War II where women came in to take jobs that men used to hold, making munitions, et cetera, um, when they went off to war. Um, is, is that true in your family? Not that you guys make munitions, but <laughs> <laughs> that that it is a matriarchal, you know, generational thing as to who cooks what. Um, well, it's, it's so funny because I grew up, I mean, I definitely I feel like my mom wore the pants in the household, but both of my parents worked. And at various points, they both sort of assumed the domestic responsibilities of carpool and such. My mom was 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 traveling for work several weeks out of the out of the month sometimes. So you know, obviously, yes, she's an amazing cook. She embodies a lot of the traditional matriarchal roles. But um, I think one thing that's really wonderful for our family is how my parents sort of just subverted all of that and all of those norms. And I feel like all that is represented in that illustration. Yeah. And it's not to say your dad doesn't have his time in this book. He surely is, is the master of yogurt. Yeah. (laughs) But can you tell me one thing about the salty sweet limeade he calls Indian Gatorade? Yes. Oh my gosh. It's so, it's almost shikunji season. Um, so that is this, uh, drink that, um, my dad introduced us. His family has been making it for a long time. I mean, it's basically just, you make limeade and add a ton of salt and pepper and it gives this it gives it this sort of like electrolyte addictiveness um and so my dad once called it indian gatorade and i think that is completely spot on in the description it sort of restores you and refuels you and gives you with like a little bit of an edge with the pepper um one of the biggest fights we had in this cookbook is my dad he loves pepper i mean he likes his shikanji drowning with pepper and I tried to like have the pepper and he got very, very upset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It seemed like they, they were such good meters for everything happening in this book and such wonderful uh, participants uh, throughout the process because your mother was writing all these recipes down for you initially. She wrote a hundred recipes. That, that, yeah. that is just quite a woman that you yes, have there. Yes. And my dad family. did all the dishes. Yeah. They are in a lungi. In a lungi. <laughs> They're superhumans. I'm telling you. Yeah. Then, <laughs> One quick last question, again, uh, maybe not quick, but this ish, um, who is it for? Is it, are you defining yourself as Indian-ish or have other people defined you as Indian-ish throughout your life? Well, it's it's kind of funny in that I I like at first did not want to write a book with Indian in the title. I didn't want to tokenize myself, put myself in a box. Um, And I actually put, I put Indian-ish 
on the book proposal and then wrote better title coming soon on the bottom. And then as I started meeting with publishing companies, they just fell in love with that name. And I realized that it, that it, that it really was a perfect embodiment of who I was. It not only embodied the food that we ate growing up, but the fact that we spoke sort of partially in Hindi, partially in English, that we listened to Bollywood music and watched Bollywood movies equally as Hollywood movies and, you know, top 40 hits that we wear kurtas and Indian jewelry with jeans. Um, everything about us is Indianish, you know, and I wanted the word American to be in the title too, because we are as Indian as we are American and those things aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah, I think it was the perfect pairing of title and subtitle. And this is one of the most refreshing books that I've read in a while. Oh, thank I can't you. wait to <laughs> certainly start cooking through it. Um, I got my stockpile of Acharas ready to go. Perfect. <laughs> Excellent, Priya. Thank you so much. And congratulations on next week when the book actually comes thank out. Thank you. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harling Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Roth Cheese for sponsoring Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.